Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast and welcome to episode 176. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in this episode is Dr. Quinn Capers. And Dr. Capers is the Vice Dean for Faculty Affairs at The Ohio State University School of Medicine. And he is just one of those people. He is a titan in our profession. And he comes on Explore the Space today to talk about a number of things, but the thing that makes all of us appreciate and look up to Dr. Capers as a mentor, even though I've never even met him face to face, as someone to learn from, as someone to want to be around and to want to emulate is his work on helping our profession be better. Dr. Capers is a cardiologist who does interventional cardiology and he's a professor of internal medicine. So he practices medicine at a high level and that is wonderful. He comes on the show, however, not to talk so much about the medicine that he practices, but to talk about the work that he does in learning about what's called the leaky pipeline, which is how we lose talent, how we lose people on the way to a career in medicine because of societal factors, because of things like implicit bias, because of unconscious bias, and the work that he does to help us learn about these things, to shed any guilt associated with them, and to get better at them is truly remarkable. I had been looking forward to having Dr. Capers on the show for a long time. He does not disappoint. This one feels aspirational. This one feels exciting. And it should be mentioned that having those feelings and emotions right now is important. We recorded this episode several weeks ago. We recorded this episode before the coronavirus pandemic really exploded in the United States, though all of us were concerned about what was coming. It's here now. I'm recording this introduction after being back in the hospital for my second day. And as a hospitalist, I do stretches of hospital work days in a row. So this stretch is an eight-day stretch. I'm not in the hospital overnight for eight days, but I'm there all day. And we're seeing patients, and in my leadership role, in my medical group, and in my community, we are riding the tectonic shifts in our profession that are happening hour by hour, and we are seeing our profession change hour by hour, and having that sense of aspiration, having that sense of we can commit to getting better because it's the right thing to do, and also because it's exciting and meaningful, it really resonates right now. Uh, This is an extraordinary time. I use the word extraordinary in all of its meanings. Some parts good, lots sad, lots scary, lots intimidating, all of which we have to continue to move through because there is no alternative. It's wonderful to be able to put this episode with Dr. Capers out on this day and for me to be able to speak about it on this day and in this time and place. We will do more content related to coronavirus As we go forward on Explore the Space, I do feel it's really important that we continue to do the work of this podcast and to keep what components of life normal that we can and continue that commitment to get better and to improve and to learn and to be accountable 
because that's going to be part of what helps us navigate the incredibly stormy seas that we're currently on right now. I hate platitudes. I've talked about that before. This is really difficult. This is an incredibly hard time. What makes it hard for me is totally different than what makes it hard for somebody else. And I don't profess to understand the experiences and the plight of so many others. I just know that it's hard. And acknowledging that I think is important. I also want to acknowledge the unbelievable talent and energy that I am seeing and feeling in my community and seeing and feeling from people all across the United States and around the world who are putting in effort beyond measure to move the needle against coronavirus and to start to figure out how we recover, how we start to get some sense of control. And it's going to be hard. All of that said, there's still a space for us to learn. There's still a space for us to be entertained. There's still a space for us to enjoy our podcasts while we do this work, because this is not going to be a short-term thing. We're going to be doing this work for a long time. And so I want to explore the space to still fill that same role that you've all come to know and appreciate with the show. Find me on social media, please. Twitter at ETS show, Instagram at explore the space show. You can email me market, explore the space show.com. You can find the whole archive of explore the space at www.explore the space show.com. Please subscribe to explore the space, wherever you'd like to download your shows. If you have the opportunity to leave a rating and a review, please do so. It is much appreciated. So a deep breath. It's been a long day. It's going to be a long haul. It's good to have people to speak to and learn from like Dr. Capers. So without further ado, Dr. Quinn Capers. Quinn, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Mark, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. There are certain people that I get them on the schedule and I say that's going to be that's going to be special and I'll just share with you not to not to preload too much and I know that you're cool under fire. I've had this one circled. <laughs> I've really been looking forward to this. <laughs> Well, you, you, you flatter me, um, uh, but I've been looking forward to it, too. I've really enjoyed listening to uh, your other conversations with uh, some luminary people that some of them I only know uh, from Twitter, and some of them I've had the pleasure of meeting. And so I've been looking forward to this as well. Well, thank you so much. And I know that you've met some of them because you are very transparent on social media about how much you travel and how much you go to the site. You go to the location, you get in front of people. And when you're doing that, you speak about a subject that I was familiar with kind of broadly, but you use a term and an analogy that I think is a really good starting point for us because I learned it from you and I took it on board and I've learned about it through you, even though I still haven't met you in person. It's this concept of the leaky pipeline. And I want to start from there because I feel like this analogy, this idea of the leaky pipeline gives us a really nice strategic view of why you work so hard, why you're traveling the United States, why you are getting in front of crowd after crowd of professionals in all different parts of medical training and just in their education. Introduce us to the leaky pipeline. Well, so it all starts, Mark, with, with knowing and believing in my heart and soul, as do uh, so many of the, of the wonderful people that invite me to speak and that I work with, that diversity in medicine is something that we need to achieve to save lives and optimize uh, health care. We have to be more diverse. And right now, 
we simply are, we're not even close to reflecting in the medical profession the diversity in this, uh, in this wonderful country of ours. So looking at how uh, we can best do that, uh, it, it just uh, is obvious when you look at uh, from kindergarten all the way through, I like to call it the kindergarten to medical school pipeline. And we lose talent at certain nodes uh, along that pipeline. We lose talent between the kindergarten and sixth grade. We lose talent in seventh and eighth grade. We lose talent going from high school to college. We lose talent in college, and we lose talent uh, 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 actually uh, once uh, they uh, apply to medical school. So that pipeline, um, I've got a diagram that I use that just shows massive leaks from kindergarten to medical school where we're leaking uh, talent. Um, and what I'm trying to do uh, in uh, some of my uh, conversations with people is to inspire people to get busy plugging up those leaks. I think it's really interesting that this pipeline goes all the way back to kindergarten. And I like, I always like in these shows when I get to speak with experts such as yourself to get that strategic view, that really high level view. And I feel like when we're doing that with you, this idea of going tracking all the way back to kindergarten, what's happening for young people when they're five, six, seven years old? Why does the pipeline start there? Uh, because it has to do with uh, uh, with having a belief in yourself and a belief that everything is possible. And actually, uh, a, a, a well-done study that I heard about that just uh, really challenged my mind in the way I think about diversifying medicine was a study that interviewed fourth graders. And what these researchers did is they interviewed fourth graders of, of both races. It was a national study. And they were asking them, and this is somewhere buried in the educational literature, and they asked them the question that we like to ask uh, children. What do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And it turns out that, uh, that the same, uh, approximately the same proportion of the black fourth graders and the white fourth graders said, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. They checked back in with them, Mark, in the sixth grade, and the, the proportion of the blacks still saying that had gone down significantly. So something is happening between the fourth and sixth grade so imagine that. You arrive in fourth grade, you feel like uh, the world is your oyster, the world is your platter, and, and there are endless possibilities. You can be whatever you want to be, and there's something happening between the fourth and sixth grade. This this it was one study, but it seemed to suggest that there's something happening between fourth and sixth grade that, that's making minority children feel like by sixth grade, no, that's not really uh, that's not really the best option for me, or that's not really realistic goal uh, for me. Uh, and that, to me, is, is heartbreaking. So I say we need to start before they get to the fourth grade. We need to start from the third grade, the second grade, you know, and even down to uh, to kindergarten. So, so that those kindergartners of all races who feel like everything is possible, we need to keep supporting them along uh, along their journey so that they continue to feel like everything is possible. I, I like that you give us this charge not to do this with college students, high school students. I like that as we're listening to this, this isn't me as a doctor that gets to get better at this. This is just me as a human being in society that gets to get better at this. What are the the tools then when you have the opportunity, when someone says, listen, I'm a parent, I, I try to work at my kid's classroom or I, I do what I, I do the best that I can. I'm engaged. I want to try to be engaged. What are the tools that you equip them with when they're interacting with kids in that age group, right, five, six, seven, eight years old, to to help keep that pipeline sealed? And what are the things that you invite them to try not to do to try to prevent leaks from springing? 
So, so I'll tell you. So most of my uh, most of my angles, I'm coming at it from what uh, our institutions can do, what healthcare providers can do, yeah. and a lot of that is is being present, mentoring, taking time out uh, to encourage, just always having these images, which with you know the images around us are so very important for what we think is possible. But when it comes to parents, though, so I, I often think about I often think about uh, the neighborhood uh, that that I grew up in. Um, and I remember it struck me in my neighborhood. So I played sports. I played sports, you know, and you know I played little league baseball, and I played, you know, on the Pee football team. Uh, and then in uh, in grade school and, and high school, I played football and basketball. But in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it always struck me that although the parents, the neighborhood, and this is not all of them. So somebody's going to hear this that grew up that, that was a parent in my neighborhood, and they're going to be upset with me. Uh, but 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 it's true that while the parents were working hard, I mean, they were tired after work, uh, and so for them to go to an event uh, would take a lot. Friday night basketball in Dayton, Ohio, on the west side, that was the big show. Uh, and they would come to the basketball games, and they knew the stars on the basketball team. When the stars of the basketball team were walking around the neighborhood, parents knew them by name. They would give them a shout-out. They got praise. Um on the other hand, I was also uh, in the National Honor Society, and I remember having uh, being inducted into the National Honor Society um, and, and having spelling bees, and the spelling bees were usually in the evening uh, afterwards. Uh, uh, my mom was there, but nobody from the neighborhood was there. And so uh, what, I, uh, what struck me then and, and what neighborhoods and communities can do is remember, children will do, uh, children need praise. And they will do what you praise them for doing. So if you praise them for being good in sports, but you're indifferent about their scholastic achievements, um, then you're sending them a, a message. If I'm going to get the most love from the neighborhood because I'm good on the football field or good in basketball, but when I make the National Honor Society or when I'm in a spelling bee, nobody from the neighborhood shows up, then as a child seeking praise, then uh, I'm, I'm going to start choosing uh, the path where I get the most praise. So, so, so I think that neighborhoods um, um, that that our children, uh, disadvantaged children, uh, underrepresented children, children from underrepresented groups, uh, have a, have an important role to play, along with the institutions. So nobody gets off the hook here. The institutions have a role to play, and 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 our everyday citizens in the neighborhood have a role to play. It feels like there's a. It, it feels like the way you describe this, this this opportunity for outreach is is there and you describe it in terms of sort of the institutions that we're a part of in medicine do you feel like there is an appetite from our institutions across the united states to step into that space that far upstream in the pipeline uh, i think so I, I, I think so and i think it's getting there i think that the, the the people and it's many 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 people who are very concerned about the lack of diversity in medicine I, I think they get it. It's not quite difficult to, to figure out that if you're only recruiting college students to apply to your medical school, then you're missing a whole lot of diversity early in the pipeline. We've got to keep people in the pipeline. Now, how far back they go, so most medical schools that I visit who care about this, they certainly have outreach programs to college and they have outreach programs to high schools. Uh, they, they might have, uh, similar to what we have, we have, a, we have several summer uh, program for high school students who are interested in uh, uh, in medicine, and and in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, our hometown 
medical school there, Wright State University, which is not where I went to medical school, but they have a wonderful program, and, and I went to it when I was in high school. So a lot of people have been doing this for a long time, but going back proximal to high school, uh, that's where some medical schools, and rightly so, might say, well, I'm not so sure it's worth the investment here. And so that's where we have to partner. I'm really proud that, that Ohio State and Columbus, Ohio, has partnered with Columbus City Schools to uh, kind of create this K-12 Health Sciences Academy. Uh, that, that you've probably seen pictures. Uh, uh, I'll occasionally put some of those pictures up on Twitter as well. Absolutely. That's really important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's really important, Mark, because if you think that, uh, you know, who, who, who are the experts at knowing uh, how do you teach a subject, how do you introduce a subject such that it really sticks in a fifth grader's mind? Well, I'm an interventional cardiologist. That, that, that's not my specialty. I don't know how to do that. But I know some people with Columbus City Schools uh, who know how to do that. So so we, we've got to partner. When you, when you talk about going back possible to high school, I think it's really good to partner with our professional educators. So you lay in this prototype, which makes a ton of sense, and I think it's a, a true credit to what you and your institution, Ohio State, has been able to, to build in that area. What is When you have the chance to meet with someone, if someone was to sit down with you and say, all right, we're interested in doing this too, but we need to understand what's at stake. We need to understand what what we could accomplish with something like this. When we do this, when we when we close this pipeline and we make it so that there aren't these leaks anymore, or conversely, if we let it stay leaky, frame for us a little bit what's at stake. I think I think very clearly lives are at stake. Um, yeah. Um, more and more more and more uh, research is coming out all the time that shows that diversity enhances the quality of care. Uh, uh, minority or disadvantaged patients of any race respond in, in important ways to physicians who share their background or share their history. Uh, and, and one of the probably most widely quoted studies, is going to be one of the most widely quoted studies, uh, that came out of Oakland by uh, a group of investigators led by a Dr. Alsan uh, showed that, uh, for instance, black male patients are more likely to consent to a flu shot to consent to get their blood pressure measured and to consent to get their blood sugar measured if it is recommended by a black doctor as opposed to doctors uh, of other uh, races. Um, and, and think about how important that is. You know, what are the, what are the health consequences of, of not getting a flu shot? I mean, every year, um, hundreds if not thousands of people die of the flu because they didn't get a flu uh, vaccination. And what are the health consequences of not knowing what your cholesterol is or your blood sugar? So imagine, you know, so just magnify that uh, if we had more black male physicians, we have more black males ostensibly uh, getting their flu shots and getting their blood sugar checked and getting their blood cholesterol checked. Um, uh, and and I, think, I think we all think the same kind of thing is happening uh, with women. Um, um, so having physicians that share your background will, will increase compliance and increase preventive services. But, but it's not just that. I always like to point out I'm never. I would. I'm not advocating that patients in this demographic should only see doctors in this demographic. But what is wonderful about all this is that if we have diversity in medicine, we doctors all learn from each other. So if I have a colleague who is Hispanic who is doing an excellent job taking care of his or her Hispanic patients, and, and, and I make rounds with this doctor, and I learn from this doctor, and I sit down with this doctor in the cafeteria then the hope is that some of that is going to rub off on me, and then I, too, can take very good uh, care of patients in that demographic. Your work on social media 
as a reflection of your public engagement and the talks that you give, one of the kernels that I've drawn from it and from other people that follow you and comment and that you'll subsequently interact with is exactly what you just described. I feel very welcome as a white male physician to learn about this, not from the viewpoint of Mark, you are ill-equipped, you're not good at this, you can't do it right because you're a white male physician. It's, hey, this, there's an opportunity here. This is aspirational stuff. As you said, lives are at stake. You make it welcoming. And I think that that is really important. The place that it feels like to me that you start with, because I also will acknowledge you are a, an expert in this work too, is helping us to understand our own implicit bias. Does learning about and understanding implicit bias, is that a good starting point for someone who says, look, I'm, I'm a physician, I'm not in an underrepresented group like myself, I'm a white male physician, but I want to be able to elevate my care when I'm meeting with anybody. Is learning about and understanding our own implicit biases, is that a good place to start? I think it is. I think it is, Mark. Uh, that's a great question. Yes, because learning about what uh, unconscious associations your brain makes, unbeknownst to you, uh, can actually uh, help you. It, it's a very, it, it's a very interesting exercise in self-awareness. So it's an exercise in self-awareness with implicit bias. We have to take the guilt out of implicit bias. It doesn't mean uh, that you are a bad person. It doesn't mean that you have discriminated against this or that group. It simply means that your brain is making certain associations based on images that you've seen all your life. But knowing about that. Uh, is very powerful. And then the good news is, as you know, I give a lot of implicit bias workshops. Uh, there are tools. There are really pretty simple tools that, uh, that we can uh, use and practice again and again so it become second nature. Uh, tools that can help us kind of override our implicit biases because that's, that's actually an easy thing to do. When you sit down then with a group, and whether you're an invited guest or someone's there because maybe they perceive that they have to be there, right? It's a required lecture, whatever the case. And this subject matter comes up and you start talking about implicit bias and do you have implicit biases against this group or that group or this demographic or that demographic? Can you sense in the moment a level of defensiveness? Can you pick up on it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've been giving implicit bias workshops. Uh, at my place uh, almost twice a month since 2017. And, and it's interesting that you said uh, sometimes there will be, uh, sometimes it will be groups where uh, they have been mandated. You know, so somebody, so some boss said, okay, I want you all to go to this implicit bias workshop. Uh, and there will be people clearly there who don't want to be there. Right? You can tell by their, their body language. <laughs> they're, 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 their arms are folded, uh, they're spouse in their chair, they're rolling their eyes, and they're watching the clock. Um, but they're, but they're, uh, fortunately, the, the, the ratio of those who are really engaged to what I just described is, is like uh, nine uh, to one. But yes, yes, we can see defensiveness, and that's why one of the things that, that's most important, what I hope I've gotten better at doing when discussing this, is taking the guilt out of it. If somebody is sitting there uh, and, and they feel like you're saying, well, you know, you've got biases against women, you've got biases against uh, our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community, and you've got biases against blacks. That's a that's an automatic turnoff. I mean, it's very easy to get defensive if somebody uh, comes at you like that because when we hear the bias, the word, just the word bias, we kind of recoil. Like, no, not me. I'm a I'm a good person. 
So there are, there are, I think it's very wise to talk about this topic, but to start by saying we are going to take the guilt out of this. This is what our brains have done based on, let's say, movies we've watched. So it's not your fault if in your mind you associate this demographic with this behavior unconsciously. Now, if you're doing it consciously, that's a different thing. But if your unconscious mind is doing it, uh, then that is not your fault. So let's get rid of the guilt, and then let's talk about how we can uh, get over these biases. So now what I'd like to do is overlay these two themes. We talked about the leaky pipeline, and we've laid in this concept of you teaching and instructing and helping everyone to get better at acknowledging and then overcoming their own implicit biases. How much of an impact does implicit bias have in popping leaks in that pipeline? Uh, so I think it's, I think it's very important. What I also like to say and, and use as an analogy um, to help create an image that pipeline with all of these leaks, but also think about from kindergarten to medical school that road that path uh, has many gates. Mm-hmm. Um, and those gates are tended by gatekeepers. So at so many places along that road, along that pathway, there's somebody, it's either one person or it's several people, some committee, some council that's looking at you and deciding who's going to go forth and who isn't. So it's those gatekeepers at the different, and some of it starts pretty early, right? There are, there are people who are deciding amongst the fourth graders, for instance, Who's going to get referred to the gifted program? Um, and then uh, uh, when you get in uh, in high school, you know these summer programs that really uh, uh, help to 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 stimulate the mind and stimulate critical thinking. Uh, often it might be high school counselors who get to decide uh, who's going to be referred to go to this summer program. And then when you get in college, it's the pre med advisor. Uh, that sometimes they can decide, or the pre-med committee, they can decide who's going to get a letter of recommendation from the pre-med committee uh, and who is not. Uh, and then, of course, the, the college admissions committee, the medical school admissions committee, so on and so forth. So lots of gates with lots of gatekeepers. And those gatekeepers, they're like you and I. They're human, and they have implicit biases. And so if one of these gatekeepers, uh, let's say, associates uh, a certain demographic with less deserving or less intelligent, not consciously, but if their unconscious mind is making that association, then they might be less likely to offer mentorship, less likely to refer this child to the gifted program, less likely to refer this 12th grader to this uh, terrific summer program, less likely to uh, uh, offer this student in my chemistry class to come and do research with me this summer. So implicit bias, uh, I think, uh, it, it plays a, a very important role in that leaky pipeline, and uh, um, and and I think a lot about the gatekeepers and what's going on with the gatekeepers. I can't help but think, as I listen to this, getting to hear you speak, you know, with me, the the size of the pipeline, the number of people involved, the variables involved, juxtaposed with what's at stake. It's a massive, massive task. It, it, it feels, I mean, just hearing it, I, I don't quite know what the right word is, so I'll ask you, when you take that step back and hear yourself describing it and hear yourself kind of stepping through all these different components, what does it feel like in terms of size and in terms of opportunity? 
they both they both feel massive. We yeah. have a massive. Uh, it's a massive problem. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, the scope of it is massive, uh, but we also have a massive opportunity. So uh, so I'm actually I'm actually encouraging. You know, if we could just talk about social media uh, for for a moment. You know, so I've got children. You know, but but now my youngest child is 21. And I've heard about this thing called social media for years, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and I, uh, honestly, I thought, uh, that's something for the kids, you know, let, let the kids uh, enjoy that, um, uh, but I'm so glad that one of my cardiology colleagues uh, convinced me to get on Twitter to use it, really, to promote our cardiology program, uh, but it turned out to be something so much more for me uh, in terms of expanding the audience for your ideas, expanding uh, the audience for some images and some messages that you want to get out. And so when I, and I say that in the context of us talking about what a big job it is, well, first of all, there are hundreds of people, thousands of people uh, just like me with the same uh, passion. But social media really helps because, I, because uh, the, those, let's say there are 10,000 people uh, with, uh, the same, uh, with the same goals that I have, uh, even those 10,000 can't be everywhere at the same time, but social media really helps. You have a truly, I love the word, and people know this, you have a truly pluripotent social media feed. Can I tell you the three things about your Twitter feed that I enjoy the most? <laughs> Thank you, yes. Okay, yes, Mark. number one, I, I like when you reflect on the talks that you've given or when somebody tags you because they're commenting on a talk that you've given because it gives me that opportunity to learn by proxy. I'm not in the room, but I can still learn. That's how I've learned about you and how I learned about the leaky pipeline and got to engage with this material. That's huge, right? And that's the work that you're just describing. Number two, and you're not going to like this, but I love it when you're on call. I love when you're the on call for the cath lab for the weekend. And here's why you frame what we do as so exciting, as so impactful, as, as, as brave, as challenging, as scary. It just, it wraps it all up. You're in the cath lab. You're, you know, somebody comes in with a heart attack. You go in there, you fix it and you, Tell them, and this is the thing that I love the most, is that you tell them your heart attack is over. The only thing that someone having a heart attack wants to hear and that their family wants to hear is this is over. Why do you do that? Well, first of all, thank you for those, thank you for those kind words. So I'm in love with being a physician. It was, it was always a dream. I never wanted to be anything else. So I am living my dream. Um, it is a dream come true. And I'm in love with being a cardiologist, and I'm in love with being an interventional cardiologist, and I love, uh, uh, I love taking care of uh, heart attack patients and working to interrupt or stop that heart attack. And so it, it just came organically. I just start saying it. You know, once we, once we get that artery open, you know, for, for those of your listeners who, who, who are not cardiologists or maybe not even physicians, the artery in the heart is blocked. We have tools to open that artery. The instant that we open it, very often, and restore blood flow to the heart muscle, the patient's chest pain goes away, the EKG normalizes, um, and it's just such a wonderful thing that I just organically started saying, uh, you know, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, this heart attack is over. Well, the cath lab, my cath lab staff at Ohio State thought that was really cute, so uh, I didn't realize how much they were listening or how much I was saying <laughs> until, uh, until one day we, we treated a, a STEMI patient, um, and I didn't say it, 
And then when my cat lab nurses asked, he said, well, is the heart attack over? It let me know that they were looking forward to that. <laughs> totally. Saying that. So, so now we really have fun with it. I mean, you know, they, 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 they're such a great group. They, they made the t-shirts uh, that, that I think I might have even shown on our social media. So, but this heart attack is over. But you're, but you're right. Not only is it fun for me to say and fun to get the cath lab really excited about this. This is a team effort, and we just might have saved a life here. But the patients love it, too. I mean, you see, when I look in their eyes, they're afraid. When they hear those words, I see the relief uh, come uh, come over their faces. And so we we, uh, we, we we have fun with that. So you'll you'll like this. I, I'm, a, I'm a busy hospitalist. I co-manage, a, we admit all of the patients that come into my institution. And we have a very, very busy cath lab. We do STEMI call for the upper third of the state of Northern California. Our cardiologists are outstanding and they're very, very busy. So we do a lot of co-management. So, which means I'm seeing those patients in conjunction with the cardiologist. I started doing that because of you. I do that now. And the response is uh-huh. awesome. It is unreal. I love it. I love it. I don't look forward to taking care. I don't want someone to have a, to have a heart attack. But when I go and see them after one of my colleagues has, re, has opened up the vessel and they're stabilized and their pain is gone and they're asking if they can eat and I get to go in there and use those words, even though they, you know, they know it. But to just kind of hear it that concrete, it's really, really cool. And I totally learned it from you. Well, thank you. I, I, really, uh, I really enjoy hearing that. I really enjoy hearing that. So, so, uh, so have, have fun with it because we're having a blast. And speaking of things that people enjoy hearing, there's another component to what you do that I love. You are the – and you'll correct me if I'm wrong now because I know that you have had a, a rapid rise in the last 18 months. You were the dean of admissions for the School of Medicine at, at The Ohio State University. So then I have a I have a, a small drop of fear that we're not going to get what I was so used to getting, which was you calling applicants to the medical school to tell them that they've been admitted, and f- it's your it's it's a video of you and the call is recorded and it's you introducing yourself, them knowing who you are, and then you tell them that they've been admitted, and then the next ninety seconds and all that that entails, it's just it's one of those great moments. It's so wonderful. I, I, I'm so I'm so uh, I'm so glad to hear that, Mark. And you know, I started doing that because, again, for me, being a doctor is a, is it's a dream come true. And so, working in admissions for ten years, and I really love it. I love admissions because it was a chance for me to help uh, people achieve their dream that way. And so, that moment, you know, I knew how special that moment was. Uh, and so, I always, in my ten years as admissions dean. Uh, one of the first things I said is we're not going to inform people that they've been admitted by email or by U.S. <laughs> mail or by anything or by our email portal. We're going to call. Uh, and so I actually, I, I'm proud to say that, that, that in my tenure, I called every uh, student that was accepted. Now, if I got their voicemail, I left them a voicemail message, which is another great story because uh, I also, as one of the deans, I participate in the graduation ceremony. And it has been really moving to me sometimes for a student at graduation to say, hey, Dr. Capers, come here. I want to let you hear something. Oh, no and way. They played the voicemail. Oh. They played the voicemail from when I called them to tell them they were accepted four years ago. They kept it. Oh, my they gosh. kept that voicemail. Uh, but the videos you're talking about, the acceptance phone calls, uh, they're just so much fun. I love the, uh, uh, I love sharing that moment. That's why I wanted to share it because it's so special. It was definitely the, 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 the best part of the job. Um, now, uh, uh, we have a new dean of admissions, 
and uh, so so I will not be making uh, those calls anymore. Um, but I still celebrate uh, with the students. I celebrate with our new dean of admissions, a wonderful uh, doctor, Dr. Demisha Rankin, and, and and all pre meds everywhere that are getting accepted. Know that I'm 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 still I'm still your biggest cheerleader. I love that moment. It's it's incredible. I remember. So I got a voicemail. I did not. I did not answer the call because I was at work, but I remember Dr. Major Bradshaw's words from Baylor College of Medicine to this day, and it's an incredible moment, and I think the way that you're able to connect with that, it's, I guess, what, what I feel like there's an opportunity for us to all do, and I feel like one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to your Twitter feed and your work and the work of so many others is that word that you used, that sense of joy is is there. It's not forced. It's hard work. It's late nights. It's the middle of the night. It's all these things, but there is that sense of joy and love and commitment that makes this profession so special. And I think that the opportunity to continue to elevate that and share that across the board, not just with other doctors, not just with healthcare professionals, but with anybody who happens across it, that, that joy of a human moment, it's, it's just incredible. And it happens all the time in the work that we do. Yes, yes. And, and so, and, and it's such a, you know, you could be on a high uh, from, from, uh, from, from helping a patient for days, for weeks. Totally. Um, uh, and so, and so it, you know, again, uh, social media is a way. Let's share that. Let's share that with people who are not in our profession. Let's share it with people who are in the profession but maybe are, are having a hard time right now. Uh, and so that's, that's what's behind that. And so that opportunity, right, if people want to learn about you, if they want to follow you, how do they find you on social media? Well, I'm only on Twitter. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Dr. Quinn Capers 4, just the number 4, uh, because I am Quinn Capers the 4th, at Dr. Quinn Capers 4. And um, I'm happy to uh, uh, keep sharing uh, the things that I'm passionate about on Twitter. The opportunities to learn from you and those that you have trained and those that work with you is really, really special. And so I think that community and the way that you're able to interact within it is is so important the the tools that you talk about, the talks that you give, that that also there's entree there for people who say, you know what, I can feel that I can get defensive, I get nervous when I hear the term implicit bias. Hmm, what is this idea of a leaky pipeline? I want to learn more. It's a, it's a really nice funnel to get at all of that stuff. I, I was so looking forward to speaking with you. I follow you. And I'm like, boy, this is just one of those people in medicine who who moves the needle. And getting to speak with you has just been such a treat. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Mark. And let, and let me just t- take some time now to, to say some nice uh, things about you. Too. So, <laughs> okay. so, I, so, I, so I follow you right back, and, and I see all of this, uh, all of this stuff. And I'm, I've been to your website where you have your podcasts, and I've, I've, I've listened to them. You know, you, you know, you're, you're, you're helping humanity in a very important way beyond uh, being a wonderful physician. But uh, these interviews that you're putting out there, they are inspiring people. They're lifting people up, and uh, and and and, it, and they're they're durable. They're going to be around. So so thank you for taking the time to do this because this is not your this is not your day job. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to do this to inspire and touch people beyond uh, those patients that you help every day. To hear those words associated with this from you is incredibly meaningful, and I really appreciate you saying that. A total treat. I look forward to, we'll meet in person someday, but until then we will, we'll continue to collaborate virtually. 
you'll come back on the show at some stage for sure. And I we'll just, yeah. what, what a treat. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you too. And goodbye to all your listeners. Thank you for listening to explore the space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at explorethespaceshow.com.